0: Greetings, you happily miserable accursed. I'm David Hurley with the sad news that your political panel is down a strategist this week. Corey Tonike is MIP today, missing in punditry. He spent a fine Alberta weekend at the Lilo Music Fest, listening to bands with names like Skinny Dick and the Chicken Catchers. Sounds like Corey. Anyway, I'm sure at the moment he's wandering around a field somewhere trying to clear the cobwebs out of his head, and he'll be back next week on the curse. In any way, we press on. Scott Reid is so goddamned here. Jordan Leichnitz is also uh-huh. so goddamned here. And here's what we're on about this week. New Brunswick, Premier Higgs and the political fallout from his changes to policy 713 versus LGBTQ students and their chosen pronouns. Speaking of political fallout, we'll dive into this whole Bernardo mess and Minister Mendicino. Right on the heels of that, our cursed clipping is Susan Delacourt's piece in the Star, Riffing off comments made right here on our pod, but that's not the reason we chose it. We chose it because it's a very smart piece on the need for a major liberal reset to have any hope of winning the next election. And then the great Gordon, Mister Pinsent, will call for our hey use. Jordan, Scott, we're fucking Coryless well, Yeah,
1: Bad, but I'm sure we'll make up for it.
0: We yeah, do. Right? I'm, I, I'm gonna say miss all sorts
1: it. of things about him when he's not here.
0: Yeah.
2: Speaking, get, of a, speaking of skinny dick, David, I know you were having trouble finding a new family doctor. Has that worked out?
0: <laughs> well, sorry, Mr. Chicken Catcher. You can't let skinny dick go by. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> not. Scott, were you properly feted and acknowledged on Father's Day?
2: Uh yeah, yeah, yeah! All four boys took me out last night for a beer and uh, some unhealthy food. And
0: what do you uh, mean? One of your for- boys is nine. Yeah, <laughs> I know.
1: Well, I mean, really relax the liquor laws. <laughs> right. the family, okay? <laughs> this is a key campaign promise from Ford. <laughs> like
2: I'm a good dad. There were no. You went shots to the Seven Eleven, the
0: table They went to the Seven Eleven. That's right, we went and sat around, we sat around.
2: We had ourselves a nice microwave dinner and a couple pints. It's great in there, and
0: we had, like, scratch and wind cards. Fuck it, man, it's a paradise. All right, all right, there are by-elections today, but we're not going to talk about them, because we'll dissect them next week. They could be interesting, they all have local dynamics that make them potentially interesting, even though they all look like they should be safe seats. But anyway, we don't know anything about them, so we're not going to talk about them. How come they're called today? by-elections? Uh wait for the New Brunswick part of this, okay? Okay, and there you go. <laughs> see I see you it's a bowling <laughs> that's just what I was looking for. <laughs> okay, today I guess we'll start with Marco Mendocino hmm. and the transfer of Paul Bernardo to medium security prison. Uh, there's been a lot of ink and words spilled about this already. We're sort of batting cleanup in the commentary section. Jordan, you have uh, some distance from this. What do you think when you look at all of it? What's your take?
1: Wait, is that code for I am young enough that I I too, as a staffer, might not know who Paul Bernardo is?
0: <laughs> no, that's that's <laughs> that's code for you're not a personal friend of Marco Mendicino. Yeah,
1: yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'll take either one, but um, <laughs> yeah. Listen, I think I think. Oh, so much has been said. Uh, it's this is bad. It's it is very not good. Uh, it's bad for it to be Mendocino that this happened to. Um, I think I'm mostly stuck on the the staff dynamic of this story because I think there's just no reasonable explanation that anyone has put forward yet to explain why staff would withhold this information. Jokes aside, I really I do not buy the they were too young to know who Paul Bernardo is, that that's not a thing, speaking... Jesse
2: James? Never heard of him. (laughs) Speaking (laughs) on behalf of... Rob Trains, you say that? under the age of 40,
1: like, (laughs) you know, we read things. We have a passing knowledge of Canadian history. Like, that's not a thing, so I don't buy that. Which leads me to the thought that either this was an attempt to create plausible deniability for the minister, which is, like, frightening in its complete wrongheadedness uh, of an approach for something like this, or uh, that they really didn't think that Mentino was going to be like helpful in having this information. And that's also really concerning if that's the case. So there is something that does not add up on the staff side of this story. Um, and I, you know, we may never know. So I but- couldn't
0: agree with you more, Jordan. So let me put yeah. this to you. There's a missing piece And I'm super interested in why nobody in the media or anywhere else is exploring this piece. Because you're right. The staff response makes no sense. We are expected to believe that they never told him at any point, including when he was writing a hot letter to the uh, commissioner of corrections can of correction services about it. So it's implausible in the extreme. It seems to me. So there's a missing piece. And here's what I'm about to posit. Mendicino's office is informed they inform the PMO okay Who they report to. That's important to understand in this government. That the chief of staff to a minister does not report to the minister like it did in previous governments. It reports to the chief of staff to the prime minister. So they've paralleled the system where deputy ministers don't report to the minister. They report to the clerk of the privy council. Now ministerial chiefs of staff report to the chief of staff to the prime minister. So the minister has nobody who is their own person. Who is looking out for them, protecting them first and foremost. So Mendocino's office informs the PMO. And from then on, we don't know what happened. The question is, what were the PMO's instructions to Mendocino's staff? Like, I'm having a hard time. Yeah. And I know that Mendocino's been in a lot of hot water. And I know that Mendocino's made mistakes, gun registry, a whole bunch of things. But I'm not sure he made one here. I'm not sure he ever knew. I think this is a PMO story, not a Mendocino story.
1: It's possible. And I mean, like, I was thinking this weekend about, like, flipping the coin on the other side. And, like, what would the conversation be, for example, if the minister had attempted to interfere in the transfer? Like, there would be a different problem in that scenario there so for sure you know there's something that doesn't add up there i'd fucking
2: love to have that problem if i was marco i would eat that problem for breakfast lunch and dinner
1: yeah but but it just like at least that would suggest a bias towards action right and we have something else entirely going on in this office so i agree there's something doesn't add up and of course there's a connection between Menachino's chief of staff and Katie Telford in terms of prior roles and experience in issues management which makes this even less plausible to have been an accident so there's a piece that we're missing here it doesn't make sense this is like we're, we're getting close to a third strike for Minichino I'm not personally persuaded this isn't necessarily a firing offense but I do think that this is a really really bad pattern like this government they are just tired as fuck like there's and there's that real repeating pattern of people not reading their emails, not receiving critical information. You know, we've got Sajin who just didn't clue in during the fall of, of Kabul that, uh, you know, maybe someone, a senator, was issuing improper documents, just wasn't reading his emails, you know. And uh, obviously, Bill Blair just missing the memo about the Chinese interference in, in um uh in Chong's family, like this stuff is bad, and I understand that it's drinking from a fire hose when you're in these offices, but also this is now enough of a pattern that there should be practices in place to catch this stuff. so why does it keep happening
0: mm. Well, Scott, I mean, you worked at a minister's office. How can this mm-hmm. possibly have happened?
2: I don't know it's inconceivable. It's literally inconceivable um I've said this in other places, but in particular, of all the things that I find most inconceivable is that after having this information for two, three months and not informing the minister, and then the minister becomes aware of the transfer And pops a fucking gasket, which, by the way, is the reaction you would like him to have. Right. That's a human being reaction and says, I don't care what the deputy in the ministry says. I'm going to issue a statement. This pisses me off. And they stand there with him and they script that and they never say, buddy, you might want to just reel this back a pinch because actually we've known uh, for quite some time. They never say that. They just let him scribe the statement and then they send it out. Like, to me, that's that's like they're not working for him. That's mind-boggling. So here's, uh, to me... But I'm not sure
1: uh, if they're working for the PMO either because it, this has been a disaster for both of them, you know?
2: Well, I, I have a working theory of what happened and then I want to say a couple things of what I think should happen. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I'm pretty wound up about this. I'm wound up about this because uh, it offends me. It offends me personally as, uh, as a professional, as someone who was a staffer. It offends me in terms of how people conduct themselves in their job and it's just to me this is kind of like you know the railway man who leaves the break off like it's just like what are you talking about this is basic uh stuff yeah. so it offends me on that level and it also upsets me because unlike Jordan I am a friend of Marco's and that doesn't mean that I won't try to be objective and acknowledge that I think he makes uh errors from time to time and there's been errors in judgment I think I think the decision to scrum the, or not scrum and the lack of preparation for that scrum. I put that squarely on him. To me, that's mind boggling the way that he wandered into that um, on Thursday afternoon. And I it's thought like it was
1: to a buzzsaw. It
2: was, it was, um, He I mean, told I, that I, buzzsaw uh, to take a deep breath. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was, so I, I, I'll try to be objective, but as a friend, I'm also watching this happen to him and I'm feeling some of the punches that he's, uh, suffering and it really, um, it really pisses me off. And so I'll go to my theory of what happened, which is a variation on what you guys are saying, but I have a more precise and I don't know. It's not like he and I have sat down and he's told me, yeah, this is what went down. So this is just me speculating as a staffer, former staffer. I think based on the character and the, and the mechanics of this government, this is what I think is possible to happen, which is a less exciting, but nevertheless, a fairly conspiratorial take. I think like it's not as, it's not going to like light up Reddit, but I think it's, you know, I think, and I think it speaks to a, a lack, I think it speaks to a, a culture, a staff culture, uh, both in terms of their relationship with PMO and minister's office, but also in terms of what their expectations are, what's freighted upon them, what is what, what is assumed about the discretion they exercise and the judgment that they employ, and, uh, and their relationship in particular with senior officials. So here's what I think. I I, I think that the department comes in and says to... Uh, the staff, hey, just want to give you a heads up. This is happening. Just so you know, so you like dumbass young staffers don't call cowboy. This has got nothing to do with the minister's discretion. He can't be involved in this. And they go, oh, 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 okay. Now either they inform PMO or PMO learns separately um, through PCO, right? Through the same sort of mechanisms. That's um, I think you think that's super consequential. In my scenario, it's not as consequential, David, because I think that what happened is that you have parallel incompetence. I don't think it's—I don't think it's a parallel conspiracy. I think it's parallel incompetence. So I think the
0: minister's office says, "Well, just oh just my say, gosh. the correction service people, the department knew enough to say this is going to need comms material, and right. we've prepared some that's for right.
2: you." Yeah. yeah. And so they say that, and the minute, but I'm guessing that they were also cautioned, you know, hey, 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 you know, and and we've all had that briefing where they go, this, listen, like I know you guys want to like go off there and crack political, but this is not something you can get involved in, and they go, oh gosh, I guess that's so. So either PMO calls them, or they call PMO. There's an understanding of PMO, and my guess is it's mid level officials in PMO uh, who fetch the same information in, in a parallel sort of mechanism and they go, mm, gosh, well, we're not really allowed to intervene. So what are you guys thinking? Well, I don't know. I might guess his PMO probably says something like, well, you know what? Just stand, Pat. Don't engage the minister just yet. Let's figure out what, you know, what, if anything should happen here, because obviously we got to, we're to be very careful. You know, it's off brand for us to get involved in this kind of issue. You know, like we're not going to challenge the independence of the judicial system and the correction system. So, you know, let's, let's not be off brand. So leave it with us. And then nothing happens. And uh, Colin never comes back, and Marco's uh, staff, mind-bogglingly in my view, probably just don't do anything. And then all this. How, they, how this explains them standing silent when they're drafting yeah. the message, I don't know. Maybe just pure human fear where they realize, holy fuck, now we're in a pickle, uh, and they just act
0: paralyzed. You're but- trending, you're trending yeah. toward the government's favorite explanation, which is that there's so many people who failed in their responsibilities that it is impossible to find no, but- accountability in any one place.
2: I think you're half right. That is definitely my explanation. I do not think it's impossible to find accountability. I think there's just a, I think I would start firing a lot of people. Um, but I feel particularly bad for my friend Marco because he's standing there blindly, not knowing this is coming at him. And then it lands on him. And, you know, and then all, and people say, well, look at the pattern with him and so on and so forth. I think there is a pattern of him having a terrible department, of him having terrible staff, and of him making misjudgments about all of that. So I'll be honest about that. But I also think in this case, it speaks to the uh, second pattern, which uh, gets to what should happen next. And that's that's the one that Jordan talked about, which is like, you know, the gears and springs in this machine don't fire. Like, there's something wrong. We've seen it with Sage, and We've seen it with Bill Blair. We've seen it with Jody Thomas, the national security advisor, the prime minister out of PCO says, well, it went, quote unquote, into a black hole. And then people go, and so I guess, fuck, man, that's just like. That's how the solar system works. Like we just can't. Do you remember do
0: when Bugs motor? Bunny used to be yeah. able to pull those out of his pocket and throw those around?
1: Again, if only someone were in charge of what right. was happening here. <laughs> like, and can we also talk about their preferred go-to issue management strategy of issuing a ministerial directive to tell the minister if something <laughs> if there's something important. He needs to know like this is
2: from now on really, really
1: tell me bottom, bottom the things the you might not think
2: otherwise to guys. tell me so now what they write they say listen my grandmother's ill uh, no i didn't mean that i meant is paul bernardo being set free for fuck's sake So anyway, what do I think? I think a bunch of people should get fired. I think a bunch of staffers should get fired. But here's my issues management uh, uh, perspective. Um, And I know this may seem... Do you think Marco Mendocino should get fired? I don't. I hope he doesn't. Um, Because I do think in this instance, uh, and I can go through other instances where I think that he's been on the receiving end, although there is a valid argument of ministerial responsibility, which says, well, hang on. In particular, staff are an extension of him. Um... And this gets into this broader issue that On comes the theory up over you chose
0: again. them isn't that the case though Scott? On the theory, well, that's, that you that's chose the challenge. them. Yeah, but so it doesn't not like, all this whether gets blurry with the center now. Because
1: because he, either he's responsible for what happens in his office and and in the ministry or he's not.
0: That's well, I'm it. just arguing I'm just arguing Jordan that in the days of yore when there might have been more ministerial accountability than there is now. Ministers had more independence and latitude to do their jobs and staff their offices and so it made sense that they were responsible for everything that came out of their departments it's less clear to me why that would be the case now when so many of these decisions are made centrally and don't really involve them
2: which yeah, takes me to no an
1: accountability argument centrally so. well
2: but hang <laughs> on so to me that's that well that's the challenge which is that we call it ministerial responsibility but really we're talking about a doctrine of accountability so if as a minister you're going to be accountable then you're going to demand as an individual for the pure reasons of natural justice and fairness that you also be responsible so if i'm not responsible for choosing my staff and i'm not responsible uh, for telling my staff what I can and can't be told, but rather that actually gets bigfooted on top of me. But nevertheless, I'll be I'll be held accountable. So from my perspective, some staff need to be fired, but I also wonder what happened on the PMO side of the chain. Does somebody need to be fired there? Like, who's going to be held accountable? And, you know, obviously at some point there'll be a cabinet shuffle, and I suspect that Marco will suffer a consequence uh, around that. But, you know, to me, I go to this broader issue, which is when we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven instances of this, I don't think, that it is a persistent conspiracy. I think there are, uh, and a lot of them around national security matters um, and public security matters. So I do think you've got a particular culture in those places. I think you've got a particular culture with staffers about what they do and don't regard as their ambit when it comes to engaging with those agencies and those departments and those officials. And I think that um, the center, PMO and PCO, Need to rewire that thing and they need to tell us they're rewiring this thing and they need to declare that they recognize that this machine of theirs is like one of those goofy flying machines that are in like, you know, sepia toned film where they're like on a flappy top and then they crash (laughs) land into a, uh, a mine somewhere. Like it's just, it's gotta be, it's gotta be fixed. Now that maybe ducks the question of Marco in this instance, but I think there's a bigger problem than Marco in his office. I think there is a problem that we've seen on display for at least six months, but I would argue well before. Uh, where this, uh, you know, like somebody pulls a lever and uh, and it connects, connects to exactly fucking nothing.
0: Jordan, I'm out on this one. You got any last yeah, thoughts? Yeah,
1: I mean, I have more thoughts. And like, I, I'm not sure I'm quite so ready to give Menachino a pass on his own responsibility and in particular his management of it since the story has broken. But yeah, let's talk about other things.
0: I hear you. I hear you. So I'm going to invoke the name Warren Buffett here but only briefly, and only to draw a distinction. Buffett is renowned for his value investing approach. He finds undervalued companies with strong growth potential and commits long-term. But I'm going to flip it. I want to talk about investing in what we value as a society, as a country, as an economy. That is what our presenting sponsor TELUS does. Always with a lens of social purpose, they continue to invest billions of dollars actually, it's hundreds of billions, into some of Canada's biggest societal challenges. Last week, I talked about healthcare. This week, it's about our food supply and sustainability. TELUS Agriculture and Consumer Goods is TELUS's newest business unit, and it has a rather large mission. How can we find better ways to feed the world and improve our food quality, safety, and sustainability through technology innovation and human compassion? There's an awful lot to this, But suffice to say that the sector has been so very analog for a long, long, well, forever, really. Digitizing, and this part is so important, linking those digital systems across each piece of the value chain will help agribusinesses, farmers and ranchers, agri-food, consumer goods, and retailers flow and exchange information so that they can grow, pack, ship, and deliver our food far more efficiently, sustainably, and profitably. That's one part of it. There's also precision agriculture technology software that helps farmers optimize their crop management and enhance quality while reducing emissions, water use, and fuel consumption. And born in Alberta AgTech that TELUS agriculture is scaling up internationally, HerdTracks is integrated online cattle management software that captures critical data through an animal's life for better health and traceability. Just a few examples, Hurley Burleyites, of the way TELUS is investing for the long term in platforms that do more than just bring a buffet like return. They reflect the core of who we are now and who we're going to be. Go to telus.com slash agriculture to learn more. Hey, let's talk about you. Let's talk about you because you were featured in Amy, our clipping of the week. Oh. <laughs> um yeah, uh, our clipping is Susan Delacourt from the Toronto Star writing about how the government needs to change or the people will change it. Um, and uh, she uh, had a great quote from Jordan in there based on something Jordan said about the Confidence and Supply Agreement last week. Um, but we're focusing on another part of her column today. Let me read you some of this. It's bad news for Justin Trudeau's government that a majority of Canadians are looking for change, as Abacus Data reported this week. It's also bad news that in Ottawa, even among some loyal Liberals, I'm sure she's referring to us, Scott, there is growing discussion about a need for change, a reset on a fairly major scale. Short of a full election and a change of government entirely, the Federal Liberals still have several ways to do a major reset. One or all of the options is likely under active consideration right now as Parliament prepares to rise for the summer and after a bruising first half of the year for Trudeau's team. Right now, the most realistic prospects for a major reset revolve around a cabinet shuffle and a staff shakeup. How large those will be or how high they will reach is Ottawa's favourite guessing game. A new NDP Liberal deal and a new Liberal leader are not on the immediate horizon. No question, though, there's a change mood in the air. Trudeau's choice at the moment boils down to being the change or having change thrust upon them. So, Libs are at the halfway point of a full mandate. Scott, what does Trudeau need to be thinking about this summer?
2: Um, A couple of things. First of all... um I just want to start by being honest about it because uh, Susan does quote, we, we glossed over it because we talked about it before, but Susan does quote Jordan's suggestion around renegotiation of the CNS deal. Um, I am like the star of the Thomas Crown affair because I have stolen that line from <laughs> Jordan. And used it in a wide variety of on the record, off the record places to make myself look smarter and thoughtful. And people go, "Gosh, that's a great thought. I hadn't actually considered that." I'm like, "Well, this is why you asked me to come around because I'm always doctor out of the (laughs) box." With
1: more New Democrats, Uh, all of these
2: ideas—we're
1: about survival.
2: One of the reasons that I quote it so often is that I actually think that it may be a lifeline for Trudeau. And I, um, because the more that I think about it, you know, like I want Trudeau to stay because I think that he's the best opportunity for the liberals to be reelected. I want the liberals to be reelected and I want the liberals to be better. And I don't think they're very good right now. And uh, and that frustrates me as a partisan. It frustrates me as a professional. Um, and so when I look at what are the range, you know, you pick up Susan's column, which I think is so so revealing because A, it acknowledges the air, uh, the mood that's in the air, but B, it also provides you with what is, unfortunately, a short list of things that might actually constitute uh, a reset. And I think that the cabinet shuffle, while there will inevitably be one, is perhaps the most illusory. It is a total mirage of a ferny oasis in a desert, right? Because unless it is a fundamental one, in which case you move your finance minister, for example... I don't think a cabinet shuffle is going to achieve a whole hell of a lot. Um, and so then you go, well, what what will work? Um, and I think it's about the PM. I think it's about the PM and what he's focused on and what he's not focused on. And so, you know, you kind of think about the CNS agreement. It comes up because you say, well, maybe the NDP see a moment and an opportunity to, to hike their price. I'm wondering if it might not be an opportunity for Trudeau to say, you know what, I'm just going to get back to basics here. These are the two or three things that they squeezed me for like a like a melon. These are actually the two or three things that I want to do. So renegotiate it and make it around your agenda items and make it an opportunity to say, you know what, forget whatever the fucking throne speech will be, 17 pages of drab, right? But here's the two or three things that I'm about between now and the next election. So that's thing number one, get down to two or three things and make them resonant. And obviously it starts with the economy. And then the second thing I think I would do. What percentage of
0: Canadians do you think think dental care was the NDP's idea? Zero, probably.
2: Like maybe, you know,
0: maybe two. I don't know. Not many.
2: But I would go back. But I also don't think, name the percentage of Canadians who think that there's been a change in dental care. Um, I don't, I think it's less. And yeah. so, um, even those who may even be direct beneficiaries of it, I think probably don't even recognize it. And, and the answer isn't to talk about it more often. I don't believe that. I think the answer is to talk about the things that Canadians care about and show that this is what I'm all about. I think that the Prime Minister needs to say, we're clear on my desk, I got three priorities, and these are them. And I think the CNS agreement is an opportunity to actually put that in the window, regenerate his own agenda and discipline the focus around stuff. And, um, and not to say the least of which is to, you know, allow your government uh, a new lease on life and survive a little while longer. So I, I'm, I'm very tempted toward Jordan's proposal because I actually think why well, we started talking about it because we thought maybe it's what the NDP need. I think it might be what the Liberals need
0: and Trudeau specifically needs. Jordan, it will be 10 years uh, by 2025 that Trudeau has been in office. Now, Ellie Alboim always tells me there are no facts in the future, and history is not a perfect guide to the future. But since Wilfred Laurier, no party has, uh, no individual has governed for 10 years and then won re-election. Okay? Um, in fact, I can only think of the Chrétien Martin as a time when a government was extended beyond... 10 years in the post-World War II era. So 10 years is a change point. What can they do to avoid that inevitability, the liberals? Is there any way for them to be the change that people are looking for?
1: So I think there is. I, I, I believe in the radical possibility of campaigns to reframe leaders, even leaders that are very well known. And uh, I, think, I think Scott had actually a pretty good thesis on this with respect to Alberta, you know, that we're now in a place, too, where when we enter into campaigns, sometimes like it's a bit historical, right? The leaders with a tight message are, are often able to reintroduce themselves to the public. So I think that's the optimistic read. I'll say, though, that I, th- I think that there are some pretty big challenges ahead of the Liberals if they want to do that. And the first one that really strikes me uh, in particular this week, as you read a lot of the commentary around end of session, is that I think, I think that they kind of have to stop lying to themselves. There's a real tendency to ignore the negative signs, to dismiss it as uh, negativity on the part of the opposition that's driving the narrative. But the reality is that uh, they've got a leader who is hated by large swaths of the Canadian population. Um, helped only by the fact that the conservative leader also has growing negatives, but it, but that's not an easy place to start. And I think I think that the other challenge that's coming for the country more broadly is that we're like we're really headed into an era of minority government, the days of. Long, secure majority governments, I think, are are dwindling and are behind us. And so if we're in a future of minority governments that are going to be unstable, that are going to require working across party lines to get any kind of stability, I think, to me, that's really a bit the long-term value of exploring another CSA with the NDP, is you're flexing that muscle again, you're building some institutional capacity around that, some political capacity around that. Um, and I think that even if it doesn't pan out this time, this is the this is really the way of the future um, for liberals if they want to govern. So I think the first step for the liberals is they there needs to be a sober assessment of where things are at. This is not a one off. This is not a result of a bad spring. This is this is the problem that lies before you. And I think that as we just discussed with respect to. The pattern of errors of which mendicino is a part um, shuffling the cabinet is not going to address that issue and i and i am of the firm belief that if you keep freeland as finance minister you're not going to get the kind of change that you need that signals a focus on cost of living and the struggles that canadians are facing and i don't think that they're ready to make that change so let's not pretend that that is a reset so That leaves uh, a real agenda reset and a reset around the prime minister's own own priorities. And he has really been not very present this spring, right? Like he's been not super hands-on on a lot of these things. And most of these are negative stories, right? So he needs to be refreshed and reintroduced with some positive work ahead of him that actually connects to what Canadians are feeling. Like, I don't know about you guys, and this is just like an anecdote but this weekend I was grocery shopping and I was struck like every other grocery store I'm going into now has a security guard posted at the exit. Like it's fucked up. It is bad out there guys. Like, and the tone of the government and the tone of the prime minister, and the tone of the finance minister in particular is not reflecting that reality. And this is a very major problem that they've got to come to grips with.
0: Well, we are now in high risk fire season which should come as no surprise to anyone living on the eastern seaboard of North America. Images of a sun barely discernible through an apocalyptic pall of smoke have filled newscasts, along with warnings to stay indoors. It's inconvenient and uncomfortable and downright dangerous for people coping with the actual fires on the ground. Our sponsor CN is in the thick of it, so to speak. Freight trains must keep running. If they stop, so do big chunks of the economy. A government task force last year discussed the dangers of climate shocks, floods and wildfires to supply chains already disrupted by foreign wars and offshore manufacturing issues beyond anyone's control. CN has long experience operating during fire season and has deployed a brigade of engineers, climate monitoring and technologies to ensure its trains keep rolling, which they have. But there's another threat menacing Canada's west coast, A strike or lockout could shut down the ports of Vancouver and Prince Rupert as early as next week. This must be avoided. Those ports are Canada's largest gateway to the world. Half a billion dollars worth of agri-foods, perishable goods, critical minerals and household necessities pass through them every day. Let me put it another way. 16% of Canada's total traded goods move through Vancouver and Rupert. Any stoppage will tear destructively through the economy. It will increase the damage inflation is already inflicting on Canadian consumers and hamper our exports. The economic disruption could take months to correct. Actually, the mere possibility of labour disruption can affect shippers' willingness to use Canadian ports. CN respects the collective bargaining process. It believes resolutions reached at the bargaining table are the most durable. But with such vital national interests at stake, the government of Canada must remain in close touch with the parties and stand ready to act if negotiations break down. The parties must keep talking. To riff on Churchill, talk-talk is better than strike lockout and all the misery that would entail. You know, Scott, if I if I was Trudeau, to must and I wanted to stay, if I'm not going to change myself, I'd be inclined to change almost fucking everything else. Um... Because you know what happens to governments at this stage? First of all, the ministers are all way too comfortable and they all have gotten complete governmentitis and they think they can't lose to Polyev because he's too crazy. And besides, they're doing too good a job at very important things for the people to replace them. That's where the cabinet's head is at. Yep. And then and then you've got staff. And I'm not talking necessarily about PMO staff. That's the most important staff. But let me just leave that for a second and just talk about general ministerial staff. At this stage of a government, you have people who likely never worked for the Liberal Party in opposition, likely have never been in anything but government. They left university and they didn't get into politics. They got into government. They went and worked for a minister. And they don't have... Any of those instincts that are formed by being in opposition and learning politics and fighting on the ground, they're all about policy and helping advance the public agenda. They're not about winning elections. That's not their mindset. That's not their skill set. And one of the weaknesses of old governments is always the staff at the ministerial level. I don't know if there's any way to do something about that, but... Bring some old hands back, find some people. You, I, I think you got to get, like, I mean, if anything, this Mendocino thing shows ministerial staffs almost devoid of any political instinct. Yeah,
2: I, I agree with all that. Um, and, and what happens, of course, just to put a finer point, repeat basically what you're saying, um, is that staff over time make that journey from. Small p politics, large p politics uh, to large g government, and they they become uh, public servants they become public servants on a different floor in a different office and that and that is why I think my explanation for what happened in the mendocino thing is plausible because I think that you have maybe mid level political staff in the prime minister 's office and mid level political staff or even senior political staff in the minister 's office both going, oh, well, you know, that's just the way this thing works. As opposed to saying, Jesus Christ, pull the fire alarm. This is Paul Bernardo. Like, let's have a meeting. And if the answer is, well, you can't do anything about it, it's like, well, let's talk about what we can do nevertheless. Like, let's examine all the options. But by the way, the meeting happens at 8 o'clock tonight, not 12 o'clock tomorrow. Like, we're fucking dealing with this today on an urgent basis. And all that sense of urgency and energy... Uh, and fighting TRIM is lost is the longer you're in government, and that's, you know, so you have to find ways to regenerate it. So I, I agree with that. I just want to make one other observation that comes out of something Jordan said, which is it's just a, a, a sidebar, and I sound like a poly sci prof, but, you know, Jordan makes the point that we may be in an era of... You are,
0: aren't you? Uh, yes, exactly. Yeah, I
1: was going
0: to say, I uh, am. <laughs> like, or you course,
1: play one on TV, at least. Uh,
0: that's, I, like I tell- when, that's like when has said at a news conference, I'm not a lawyer.
1: I'm not a lawyer. I mean, I
0: but I am a lawyer. But I mean,
2: uh, I'm not a garage mechanic. That one for sure, true. Um, uh, Well, I'm not a poli sci prof. I I taught one course, uh, which mercifully I closed the books on this past week, and uh, by upgrading one student's mark, and now none of them will bother me. Uh, I um, I just wanted to say, like you know, you make the point, Jordan. That we may be in an era where minority governments are at least a norm, if not a permanent feature of our system, and yet the corollary to that, which is uncomfortable, is that partisan divide has never been sharper, and not just not just partisanship, but like the gulf between divides and the the institutional incentives within the individual parties to not interact with others and to not uh express any appreciation uh for the other side to not compromise so we're in this era which is interesting like if you're right and i see no evidence that you're not that you know it 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 takes us into this strange world where people that don't want to work together have never been more required to work together and it doesn't doesn't lead to a a a great outcome so we'll see if that gets fixed but um it's just, a, anyway, we're just, it's just another sign of what you're seeing. It's just another security guard at the grocery store. Everything is fucked right up. Let's be honest about it. Everything from A to Z, from north to south, from
0: east to west, from morning to night. Jordan, when an NDP strategist looks at poll numbers that say 35 conservative, 28 liberal, 21 NDP, what do you think?
1: Well, I mean, we think, like, fuck liberals, get your head out of your ass and run some negative ads. Like, to be honest with you, you don't think
0: you don't think, holy Christ, the gap between us and the liberals is the same as the gap between them and the and the conservatives and the liberals and us are both in the 20s.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think that the fact that, you know, and if we go back to the to the same abacus poll. So, yes, okay, so 80 percent of people are looking for change, but it was, I believe, roughly 30 percent are not happy with the options in front of them, i.e. are not comfortable voting conservative, but are not happy with liberals. Well, this is not actually terrible news for Singh. Uh, There is a possibility there of capturing some of those voters. So I think that on the whole, these numbers are not in and of themselves that bad for the New Democrats. And the New Democrats, you know, there's been some slight gains in the horse race numbers. And I think it'll all depend on how Singh plays the next hand, right? What happens in the next six months, Is he able to leverage this moment to extract some more, you know, some more juice? And it's not even necessarily so much about the particular policy concessions. I think it's about the perception of driving the agenda, of gaining some credibility, and just, like, he needs greater share of mind within the political discourse. So I think there's some moments there for them. But to be very clear with you, like, no new Democrat wants a conservative government. Like, that is an extraordinarily bad outcome from our perspective, and I think that a lot of new Democrats... Can I uh, ask you, look,
0: honestly, without, yeah. getting, without ripping off uh, scabs, honestly, <laughs> why that calculation would have changed from Leighton Harper to Singh Poliev?
1: Well, I think what has changed is there's a couple of things. One is the growing, as we're just talking about, the growing likelihood of minority government situations. So the possibility of new Democrats to have a foot in the door of power that way is far greater now than it was 10 years ago. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing I think the other reality is that the conservatives that we're dealing with today are like, this is a different party. This is a party flirting with and engaging in a kind of politics that is very troubling. I don't want to suggest that it means that New Democrats are ready to do anything to stop them because New Democrats are in the game to win government. And that is the project and that is the goal. But I think that there's a growing recognition that the path to that may be a bit nonlinear, right? And it may pass by these confidence and supply agreements, governing in coalition in future. Who knows? So I think that's another big change. But like many social democratic parties all around the world, the real challenge for New Democrats right now is how to look at the growing gap between the way working class people feel unrepresented uh, by centrist liberal democratic governments, and to reconnect with that working class base on the basis of things like affordability, working conditions, cost of living, all of that, and present a credible offer that actually engages people. This is not a unique challenge. This is a challenge that exists around the world for New Democrats, and nobody has yet really found that magic thing. But what we are seeing is that in places where Social Democrats are not able to make that offer compellingly, we are seeing a rise of far-right parties. And I think that there's a real concern that, that that dynamic is here, that dynamic is visiting Canada. So... You know, New Democrats are generally a very pragmatic bunch, certainly the folks around Singer, and they have a very clear project in mind, and that is eventually to form government. Um, But they're willing to be creative in how they get there. And I think that that's a strength.
0: So I think that's so interesting, because I believe that back in 2004, 2005, Mrs. Layton and Broadbent, etc., believed that the path to power was to destroy the Liberal Party. And that uh, that was... More important than who uh, than whether Harper formed the government or not was getting the Liberal Party out of the way almost happened. But now you're saying that there's a different, more collaborative approach to seeking power in a different dynamic. I mean, it feels like a very different mindset for the NDP. Well, and what I, I was like going to point be- out is if the numbers are 28-21 nationally, they're probably 26-23 in English Canada.
1: Yeah. Right. The other thing I would say is that what has also changed is like is the Liberal Party, right? So right now, you're facing a Liberal Party in decline. You're facing a very unpopular prime minister. You're facing a cabinet that is tired, that is worn. The brand is not strong. Uh, you know, obviously, Liberal vote is is abandoning entire parts of the country. So the opponent is also weaker. So that also means that... The focus can be a little bit broader right now because, to be very frank, you know the liberals are in the process of defeating themselves in some ways.
2: Right. Can all I right. just add one quick thing, David? Yeah. Um, and I'm sorry to say this, Jordan. I know this is confrontational. I hear all of that. I thought it's all very thoughtful, and I think it's super interesting, particularly the um, the the contrast between 2004 and today, as David observed. But I think this, if I want to be honest about 2721. I don't think the Singh has it. I don't think Singh's going to find it. I don't think Singh's ever going to find it. And I think that where Trudeau has the party right now, and where Trudeau's personal brand is, particularly against somebody like Paulyev, but like you want to talk about them being arrogant about, oh well, Paulyev can't, you know, defeat us because he's too crazy. I think he can. But I, I am almost sanguine when it comes to the NDP threat. Like, I just believe that Trudeau can pivot in a second and pick up a ton of those votes. I do not believe that Singh will ever be competitive in a national election to really threaten the party, uh, the the Liberals. I just don't think he's got it. I've I've interviewed the guy. I've observed him now for a number of years. I watched him last Saturday night at the press gallery dinner. I just don't think he's got it. He's not good.
0: Well, the the agreements are real handicap. I mean, Angus Reid says this morning and i you know i don't i don't uh, go to the bank and ask for a loan based on their work but angus reed uh angus reed said this morning that i think more than half of ndp voters uh, approve of trudeau's performance as prime minister um and that's presumably because they're not in part because they like the agenda parts of it and presumably in part because they're not hearing full-throated opposition from the ndp to the government
1: well i would read those numbers a bit differently like i i think i think that that also suggests a comfort with a part of NDP voters with a governing agenda that they feel that their party is a part of, right? So I I think it's it's difficult to deduce from that 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 translates into a lack of enthusiasm for Singh personally. And I mean, you know, as to Scott's point, like, we'll see, right? Like, I think a lot, like, Singh is being presented with a really unique and, and interesting political moment here. He has already made some interesting choices, some risky choices in terms of forming the CSA in the first place. Uh, And and I think that that kind of, that kind of gambling actually bodes pretty well. Like when you're in fourth place, you have to take some risks if you want to move up and he and his team are doing that. So we'll see.
0: Okay. Let's swing out to New Brunswick. Let's swing out to New Brunswick. Premier Hayes, Uh, known for his tolerance and love of diversity, has decided that with all of New Brunswick's economic and health care problems fixed, he can focus on trans kids in school. Ah, who am I kidding? Higgs, a known bigot and deeply unpopular, has decided that the only way he can win another election is by polarizing the province around this issue, and he is doing so to the horror of much of his own party. Yet, it might work, because the polls indicate people are on his side. Jordan? What's your take?
1: I just, I have to, like, declare a bias right off the top, which is that as much as I just want to give this, like, a cold-blooded political analysis, I just think it is completely fucking disgusting, cowardly base, like, to have this kind of politically motivated garbage, like, on the back of, like, actual kids. So I say that right off the top. Um, I think, I mean, it's obviously we're in a context with this, right? And right now we're watching what's happening in the U S like Higgs is clearly going for like big DeSantis energy here with what he's bringing, uh, to cover up his own failures. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily in the end going to work for him. I think he is, uh, you know, even, even through a leadership review, he may end up being on the way out because of this. And because of his treatment of his own caucus and cabinet, um, but the cost of this stuff is real and high. And um, right now, we are we're in a moment where anti-LGBTQ hate is growing south of the border, but it's growing in Canada too. Like even police-reported hate crime is up like sixty-two percent. Um, and what we're talking about here too, and I I think it's actually important to specify it, is basically requiring teachers to dead name and misgender kids in school. Or out themselves to their parents, which is not safe for them in many circumstances. This is really troubling stuff. And I think that ultimately, even if the polls are showing that there is perhaps a constituency for this within some parts of the voting public in New Brunswick, the arc of history does bend towards justice on this stuff eventually. It is not a good look. It is not going to end well for Higgs. Um, But What I really think about is, uh, like, who's getting hurt in the meantime? And uh, I find the whole thing just really fucking depressing and enraging. Um, And I hope that he's roundly punished by saner voices within his own party and within the electorate.
0: So, Scott, this guy's been buried in the polls for months and months, if not years now. Um, And um, he's brought in uh, people that actually worked against uh, Ralph out in Regina, um, and are obviously very good at isolating a particular wedge and driving that wedge. Nobody could defeat Ralph for years and years and years in Regina, and they came up with the line, which they blasted everywhere in Regina, which is, if you really want to send Trudeau a message, defeat Goodale. Um, and so now, they've, now they're out helping Higgs. And so... It's pretty clever politically, isn't it, that a guy that was on this back foot in every policy area now could have an election where the Liberal leader has to argue that parents should not be informed if their children decide to change their pronouns at school. That's, I would assume, the weakest ground on which Susan Holt could possibly be fighting.
2: Yes, uh, it may well be that they can find some political advantage there. And that sads me for all the reasons that Jordan articulated. Um what I know about New Brunswick politics wouldn't fit in a drag queen's brazier, So I, 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 I won't mouth off about it too much. I, I, I want to make this broader point, which Jordan kind of touched on quickly. But, you know, like when you're sitting around with your conservative friends, particularly those that are more sort of modern conservative party, the more reactionary kind of hardcore populist rage merchant sort of version. And you say fuck, man, this is like a, this is Trumpy, this shit. And they get crazy. Oh, this fucking anti-US stuff. And you always, oh, it's US, US, US. I'm sorry, this is US stuff. The reason these people are able to advise this to Higgs is... Not that there is something suddenly sweeping the province of New Brunswick where people, people's teenagers or even younger children are suddenly saying, oh, my God, I wish to reassign myself from a gender perspective. That is not some pandemic that's occurring across the province. This is a craven political calculation is born straight off of Fox News. It's pulled right out of the playbook. So it's kind of like, what are the menu of options where you can use to divide and animate people Generate division that might benefit you electorally. Oh, these guys say, here's one. It's plucked straight from the U.S. playbook. Um, and in addition to that, it has some resonance because, you know, presumably some people are sitting around reading, you know, U.S. news. They're watching this debate unfold in the States. They're consuming Fox news and they're like, well, fuck, man, this is a big problem. Jesus, age, Christ, this is getting to be out of control. And it just makes me this is my theme for the day, I guess, it makes me utterly depressed for the future because um, this is just us uh, importing the very worst of America's divided, divisive, cruddy politics. And, you know, like, there's no mistaking that when the Tea Party was formed and the America first shit starts and then Trump is formed and now DeSantis or whatever succeeds it, all this kind of rage merchant populist anti-everything uh, politics takes hold of the Republican Party and now has it by the balls that it's going to happen here. It just does. It drifts. And it drifts on the other side. Like, it drifts mechanically. They invent direct mail. We incorporate it into our politics eight years later. On and on and on. That you know uh, The Trudeau guys go and they borrow what they can and
0: then build on it, innovate it from Barack Obama's social but media. Those are tactics, at least. It drives me crazy when Canada imports culture wars.
2: It absolutely imports culture wars, and that's what's happening here. And so I, that that just disturbs me, and it disturbs me when you think, well, maybe that should not work because that's not our political culture. That's not a debate that's occurring here. It's like, oh, well, we can make that debate occur here. Yeah, actually. and
1: I want to like I I don't think we we also need to not just pick on New Brunswick here because we're seeing this pop up all across the country. You have the York Regional School Board refusing to raise a pride flag. Uh, because of a very similar campaign, you had that uh, that deranged person in Kelowna yelling at uh, a girl with short hair at a track meet um, and calling her parents groomers. Like this stuff is unbelievably toxic, and it's here. And what I worry about, what really haunts my dreams on this stuff, is that the way our fundraising is now working, which is all small donors, all click, you know, driven. that that there was reward for parties in pushing this shit. Um, And, of course, as we also, like many parts of the Western world, we face declining voter turnout. This kind of toxic crap riles up the base, gets them out, and suppresses moderates and people who just don't want to tune in to these kind of fights. I think it's very dangerous. I think it's very scary, and I think it's really depressing. And I think, ultimately, like the policies that we're talking about here... It's so crazy because, you know, trans people in Canada are less than one percent of the population and a policy that allows kids to have a preferred name or gender used in school without telling their parents is about keeping kids alive, period. That's it. This is like literally politics on the back of the very most marginalized kids. And I just hope I just really hope that Higgs pays a price for this.
0: Totally. It's deeply cynical. Disgusting. It's deeply cynical, and the New Brunswick people have a chance to f- reject it for what it is. So I hope that they do
1: it. Do I it. I hope
0: that they do it. All right, guys. It's been a spirited show. The specter of Gordon Pinsett will bring us to a conclusion.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, please return to your seats. The hey yous are about to begin. Jordan, do you got a hey you? I do. It's so my hey you this week? Is going out to the ONDP and to Merit Styles. Um, so we are we are well done of uh, of the spring and into the summer. And uh, another Abacus poll out this week was looking at leader impressions in Ontario. And m- several months in, Merit still is not making an impression. So my hey you, so it's about thirty percent of people don't really know about Merit. And so my Hey You is out to Merit and the team around her. It's time to get out there, to differentiate, to be clearly different from Andrea. You have to give voters a way to know you and to know what your differences are and to provide that fresh start. I think there was a lot of chatter internally about not having the leadership race and the advantages that that might confer in terms of time to get the leader known while the Liberals are off having their leadership race, but that time is ticking. And so use this summer, make a plan, get out there, be different um, because December is coming quickly.
0: Awesome. Scott?
2: Uh, well, I'm going to go weird. I'm going to go personal for a minute. Um, I have recently had to spend a fair bit of time in hospitals and hospital rooms. It doesn't look like that's necessarily going to change uh, quickly. So I want to say a two-part, hey, you. First, very specifically, um, the Hastings County uh, Paramedic Services uh, to Dr. Alma Flea at Kingston General Hospital, all the staff in the Cardiac Services Unit. Wow, thanks. But beyond that, It is incredible to watch the system snap into place, our healthcare system, when there's a genuine health crisis. I'm now going to be, because of family, watching the transition, because now I've got a family member who's going to move out of that critical care situation and into a recovery situation. And my family member doesn't have a family doctor, right, living in rural Ontario. And that's going to be an interesting and anxiety-ridden process to watch. So I have nothing but praise for the system and how it responded. But I'm going to be really watching closely um, for these uh, weeks and months ahead because I I have a feeling it's going to be a bumpy road.
0: Well, good luck with it. Thanks. Mm. Um, My Hey You goes out to uh, Bonnie Crombie. Um, You stumbled out of the gate a little bit because you kind of clumsily did what you need to do. Your instincts are right. People need to know that the Liberal Party learned from its defeat that the Liberal Party has evolved and changed. Change is necessary. But there are some things Liberal partisans hold very dear, and the Green Belt is one of them. Not to mention that it's ground zero for a potential political scandal in the province of Ontario featuring the Ford government. So you need to demonstrate change. Don't get thrown off that track and feel you need to adhere to every orthodoxy, but be a little bit more selective about the ones that, places that you pick to demonstrate change. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening and watching today. I want to thank Jordan and Scott for showing up. Corey, hope you're having a good day, wherever the hell you are. Um, I want to thank our presenting sponsor, TELUS. And I want to thank our sponsor, CN Rail. And I want to thank the Saskatchewan Rough Riders for nothing. Uh, We'll see you next week with Corey tonight and more Curse of Politics. See you then.